Welcome to Tilting at Windmills with your host, Mike Donahue. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tilting at Windmills with Mike Donahue. This episode, we're happily joined by Dr. Dalashesh from Humboldt State University, a professor of history whose subject matter expertise is in the history of Palestine, specifically, I think, around the transition of from the British mandate to Israeli rule. Welcome, doctor. Thank you so much. Did I, I'm very did glad I get to that be here. Pretty right? Yes, yes. Um, I'm a professor of history who focuses on the transition between the mandate and, and uh, the British mandate and Israel, particularly focusing on the Palestinians who become citizens of Israel after 1948. So I think one of the, obviously, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has loomed large over here in American media mm-hmm. for quite some time. There was a significant flare-up, I think, that happened about six months ago, I think, with uh, some rocket fire exchange. And it it sort of brought that conflict, which has always sort of been in the back of the American mindset, mm-hmm. um, but fairly removed, back more into the forefront. Yes. So, Understanding or not understanding or not fully defining where we are today, and and I know this is an insane question to ask, but can you just, in five minutes, give me a quick summary of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I love this question because I actually teach a whole course on that. <laughs> so it's always, um, but but I'll I'll try. Yes, I'll try to give some broad strokes of, of the conflict. So so first, what is it not? I think is very, very important, particularly to an American audience, because there is this conception of this as a religious conflict or a conflict, a primordial conflict, a conflict that has been going on forever, and thus, in certain ways, assumed to continue to go on forever. It is neither of those. It is not a religious conflict. It is a, a conflict over a piece of land, or as one of the historians uh, of the Middle East, uh, um, James Galvin, calls it a, a conflict over real estate. It's a modern conflict that begins in the late 19th century uh, between two nationalist movements that make claims to the same piece of land. One group, the Palestinians, have lived in this country for centuries. They have prospered. Um, they have had generations. My village, actually, my family has can trace our roots to this specific village for about 300 years. They were under the Ottoman rule, but by the late 19th century, as historian Rashid Khalidi shows, there was a clear distinct Palestinian identity developing among them. At the same time, within European Jewish communities, there was also developing a national movement which would come to be called Zionism. This movement develops in the European context of modern European colonialism, which was basically, it's the heyday of the modern wave of colonialism, which begins in the mid to uh, late 19th century, and also within the context of very increasingly rising European nationalism, those along with a very long history of anti-Semitism in Europe and harassment to the uh, Jewish people in Europe come together to create an idea among some of the Jewish communities that the only solution for what 
Theodor Herzl, the father of Zionism, called the Jewish question in Europe is for Jews to have their own country. And initially there was discussions and there was actually openness to have this Jewish state somewhere else, uh, including Uganda and even in California was floated very, very briefly. But eventually they settled on Palestine because of the historic connection that Jews had to Palestine because of the religious significance to Palestine. And this is the place where religion comes in, but it actually comes in in service of this modern phenomenon. So I always really find it really important to highlight that this is a 19th century conflict that begins because of the rise of nationalism around the world in Europe and beyond. The problem with the Zionist choice of Palestine as a homeland is that Unlike the claim of Zionism that this was an empty land, very similar to basically to the argument, the American settler argument of empty land, Palestine was full of people. Because of that, because also of the nature of the settler colonial project, that is because the Zionist movement didn't just come to move to Palestine. Jews have lived in Palestine continuously since the um, expulsion from Spain. They've been coming to Palestine as religious mission, and they've lived among the Palestinians in peace. But what the change in the late 19th century is that now this is a movement that wants to turn it into their exclusive home, or at least one's political domination of the area to the detriment of the vast majority of the of the people in Palestine. In 1917, this movement, am I going too much into details? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Let me, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack there. Yes. And by the way, Sorry, I had for our, our listeners, I have no idea what side of this the professor falls on. <laughs> I don't know, even know if she has a side. I'm sure some of it will come through throughout, but I'm going into this sight unseen. So if I can just unpack yes. and rewind just a little bit. Yes, yes, um, sorry. So it's okay, it's okay. So mm-hmm. from, I guess, from a, a current perspective, we can really yes. start tracing things back to the British rule or the British colonization mm-hmm. of the area that we consider Palestine, right? Yes. Sort of the modern, the modern story begins there. So basically... The British, as a colonial empire, viewed Palestine as as sort of one of their territories, their rule, the their, British, their laws. Right. The British occupied Palestine in 1917 during the war, the World War One, and control it until 1948. So between 1917 and 1948, this guy Herzl. Uh, he has already been dead. Herzl, Herzl was the, the father, the, the intellectual ideological father, um, and by this point he had died. But the Zionist movement had created a whole apparatus that becomes partner to the British in governing Palestine. So I think it's, I think it's critical and important, and I think because I think this is one of the big uh, points of conflict currently, is that when over here, when we hear, you know, Zionism, we immediately mm-hmm. think, the people on the far right that are talking about the Illuminati and everybody controlling everything, you know, those are Zionist mm-hmm. overlords, kind of weird edge fringe stuff. But the the reality is, I think, that it's mm-hmm. really just Zionism is just the label for a movement that advocates for the existence of a state of Israel or a Jewish for the existence of a Jewish state. 
Yes. Yes. This is the, actually the self-identification of this group. It becomes appropriated in negative terms by different groups, but in reality, this is the self-identification that both historically, but even contemporary proponents of this idea of a Jewish state or a Jewish entity. And, and there's a whole range of what this means to people, but the idea, the original idea was a Jewish nation state and by the early 20th century, a Jewish nation state in Palestine. So the term itself is not pejorative. The term itself is actually a self-identifier. It gets appropriated by conspiracy theorists of all sorts and other groups. But it's right. Okay. But when they talk about the Jewish state, do they imagine that also being under, I don't know the word for it, but Jewish laws? Oh, no, no, no. It was that it was not meant to be a religious state. The Jewish state was conceptualized by secular. Yes, it is very confusing. Um, so sometimes Palestinian critics half jokingly say that a bunch of seculars who don't believe in God claim that God promised them the Palestine. But it is, there is something in this sense that is very complicated because actually in the early years and, and up to the Holocaust, the vast majority of the religious Jewish institution was actually opposed to the idea of Zionism because they believed that it was God's decision to exile Jews from the land of Israel, aka Palestine, and it is only God's will that will return them, that the nationalist movement is actually interfering with God's will. Um, the people who led the Zionist movement were avid secularists who wanted a secular state very much modeled on the European nation-state model. But in a matter of ethnicity one, rather than religion? Exactly. Well, actually, what it develops into is actually nationalism rather than ethnicity. So the idea that is developed in this context is that this group, i.e. the people who believe in Judaism, who hail from Jewish tradition, are actually a national group. And it is conceptualized around that. Right, which is which is consistent with the time when when sort of all these, what formerly were sort of big unified masses of something started breaking up into smaller ethnicity-based nations? It definitely fits actually in the moment of, of the, if you, to understand it more accurately, I think you could think about it in terms of the rise of the nation, of nationalism in Europe. It fits very, very much, very well into this moment in which different European nations were coming to be. If you think about it, Germany was created as a nation state very, very late in basically in the in the eighteen uh, sorry nineteenth century in the eighteen hundreds as a nation state. So it fits within this framework. But to make it easier for an American to understand this relationship between state and re religion in Israel, think about the concept uh, in the u s where where the kind of the founding fathers were these Puritans, right, who were escaping for some kind of religious idea, but then they come and create the secular state that believes in or develops the idea of uh, manifest destiny, which is a very religious concept, right? But in no phase was the U.S. actually a state based on religion. And Zionism in that sense has a very similar relationship where there's a 
religious claim that is used for legitimacy, but religion is not central to the state. It has changed in recent decades with the rise of the ultra-Orthodox parties and their influence in the government. But it is still a a self-defined secular state. Got it. Out of curiosity, did he mean for it to be a democracy? Was Did he envision uh, also the, the kind of, uh, was it representative? Was there any sort of formation of the government? Herzl himself, in his conceptualization, was more a supporter of monarchies, of European monarchical pattern. But And, and there's always been some influence of Eastern European centralized state in the governance. But the state in 1948, with the founding of the state, it was founded as a democratic state formally. Now, I highlight formally because from the beginning, the Palestinians who become citizens of Israel are excluded. From the beginning, there are hierarchies even among Jews themselves. The state is dominated by the Ashkenazi, i.e. the European Jewish community, the Mizrahi or the Jews of Arab descent are basically pushed to the margins within this state. So in that sense, there's this tension from the beginning that the state is a self-identified liberal democratic state, but in practice, it was more what Israeli geographer Oronif Tachel calls uh, ethnocracy, uh, which means it's it's an ethnic state for some and a democracy for others. Okay, so let's let's go back to the big stroke. So mm-hmm. Britain controls the region from 1917 mm-hmm. to 1948. You know, during that period, or at least until 1939 mm-hmm. or so, there's no conflict in the region. Oh, no, no, there's a lot of conflict from okay. the beginning. So the, the Jewish settlement in Palestine begins in the formal dating is 1882, the Zionist settlement in Palestine, uh, with what is called the first wave of, of Aliyah, the, the Hebrew term uh, for immigration to, to Palestine. And already from that early period, there is uh, sporadic and escalating conflicts between the uh, new settlers and the Palestinians. 1917, the British give the Balfour Declaration, which is basically a promise from the British government to support the creation of a Jewish national home in Palestine. And the Palestinians immediately respond by rejecting it. And there is actually repeated waves of conflict in the region because of the increasing protest by the Palestinians, um, which actually reached a peak in 1936 in the what, what the Palestinians called the Great Arab Revolt, which lasted between 1936 and 1939, uh, which was basically a massive popular movement that began with six months strike throughout the country, in which basically the Palestinians demanded the end of British colonialism, the end of Jewish immigration to Palestine, and the end of the land policy that enabled the Zionist movement to expand its control over the land in Palestine and the creation of a democratic government. That revolt was crushed massively and violently by the British. So by the beginning of World War II, in 1939, Palestine was actually devastated by this um, revolt, and the years of the war were actually quiet. The violence renewed in 1946-1947 towards the end of the British mandate. 
So I just, I need to wrap my head around this a bit. So in 1917, are there clearly defined national borders of Palestine? Or is it blurry? The British actually create the borders because all this area that what we call now Palestine, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, uh, were all a part of the Ottoman Empire until 1918. So 1917, the British, or 19, basically the formal borders are created in the peace treaties at the end of World War I. And the British, who had promised Palestine as a, as a national home for the Jewish community, cut out what is then called Transjordan and create this new other country, which basically was up until then seen as a part of historic Palestine. Um, the French take over Syria and then divide it into Syria and Lebanon. So those, those borders that we now see were all created after World War I. But how, how much did they mirror... I mean, did they make sense at the time? Were they? Were no. they okay. So even from the jump, the, the, it was sort of cut up. Bad. The map was drawn based on colonial interests and solely on colonial interests. As I mentioned, there was this idea of Palestinians as an identity that was already developing, but they also viewed themselves as a part of a larger entity, which was called Greater Syria. And at the end of World War I, there was actually an Arab struggle to create this country, Greater Syria, which would have encompassed these countries, which are Israel, Palestine, um, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. Uh, but those were then divided according to colonial interests. Okay, got it. And as we have know throughout history, they don't always do the best job when, when doing They mostly they don't. Do in, <laughs> they tend to do it in their interests. <laughs> But if exactly. I heard if I heard you right, because we're, we're one of the sort of if you dig in, it's like you know, oh, they lived in peace for all this time. But it seems like, I mean, is it fair to say they did live in peace until the Jewish immigrants became started coming in? Until Zionist Jewish immigrants, and this is a differentiation that I think is very very important because, as I mentioned, there was historically a long standing Jewish community in Palestine that had been there for centuries, that had lived in peace with the Palestinians. Uh, in fact, if you see historic footage, you can see that they actually dressed the same, they ate the same, they spoke the same language. The only difference is that they prayed in different languages for different religions. The tensions begin when the Zionist immigrants begin coming to Palestine with a European condescending attitude that basically says, we deserve this land, you're backward, and we're going to take over and control. That's when the conflicts begin. And I'm not saying it was all rosy and beautiful, but it was definitely not, the center of contest was not religion, and people lived together. And, and, and it even lasted long beyond that. My grandmother used to talk about Jewish neighbors who, you know, they would borrow sugar from each other and things like that. And this is, you know, my great-grandmother, this is in the 1920s and 30s. So what, and, and just out of curiosity, what is sort of the percentage of population breakdown in that sort of 1917? So 1917, it's 95% Arab-Palestinians and 5% Jewish. And this is after three waves of immigration of Zionist immigration to Palestine. 
During the British mandate, the British enable massive immigration and expansion of the Zionist movement in Palestine. In the 1930s, the number is actually double because the middle-class Jews who were able to escape Europe at this point were mostly unable to go anywhere else. Because one of the biggest things that happened in this period is that, if you remember, if you know American history, in 1924, the U.S. closes its borders. And with the global recession, the U.S. basically almost hermetically closes its borders. So if you're a European Jew stuck with a rising hatred and Nazism in Europe, the only place you basically could have gone to was Palestine. So the numbers increased significantly during the 30s. But even so, by 1948, the Palestinians were still a majority in historic Palestine. So prior to the first wave of Zionism, what would that sort of population breakdown be, do you think? Marginal. Under under 5%? Yes. Yeah, the 5%. I mean, a lot of the people who arrive in the first two waves end up leaving But there were basically four Jewish communities, established Jewish communities in Hebron, basically in the holy cities for Jews, Hebron, Jerusalem, Tiberias, and uh, and Safed. And they start basically, the the settlers start settling in Tel Aviv, which is established as a new city in 1907, I think, and then in the Kibbutzim and uh, the agricultural communities. How much, and, and this is a this is a, a judgment call, I think. How much of the British support of the Zionist movement was in itself anti-Semitic? As a, was there any of that? Um, like we oh, definitely. Let's get them out of here. Yes. So the I mentioned the Balfour Declaration. Balfour was the the British foreign minister during World War One, and he was actually an openly anti-Semite. So in, in in that sense, it's actually kind of a bizarre mix where this anti-Semite, openly anti-Semite, basically supports the Jewish state for exactly the the logic that you mentioned, uh, which is we can basically if we create a Jewish state, then we're going to be able to get rid of them in Europe. And that strand continues and, and, and is actually, according to new research, replicated in the U.S. support for the creation of, of the Jewish state. Because the, the argument is that, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees stranded in Europe and they needed somewhere to go. So if it wasn't the creation of Israel, they would have probably ended up in the U.S. Mm. Um, and That's this research argues that at least among some of the American political institution, this was a crucial factor. Because, uh, and I think hopefully a lot of listeners know that America had quite the flirtation with fascism. Okay, so 1917, 1948, Jewish immigration, Zionist I feel like it's sometimes they're one and the same and then sometimes they're not one and the same. But Jewish immigration increases significantly over that period. And there is conflict. In the 1930s, yes. Right, between the Palestinians and, and the newly landed immigrants. And then 1948, World War II happens. The Holocaust happens. Well, uh, yes. 
there's a global sense, and I think there's probably a, a fair dollop mm-hmm. of guilt and shame over yes, know, exactly. countries not doing enough. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a probably a near global sort of thing of we we need to make this happen for Israelis. And for, so what what actually happens? That is that the UN two forty two. Uh, no, that's 181, you, mostly known as the partition plan. So 1947, the British are exhausted from the war. They decide they're done with this place, right? So they, they send it back to the, the UN because the, they officially were a mandate, i.e. they were given this authority by the League of Nations, which is now the UN. They basically come to the UN and they say, you deal with this. The UN puts together a committee from uh, called the UNSCOP, and they recommend the partition of Palestine into an Arab state, a Jewish state, and then international Jerusalem or international um, holy places. And this this decision is made on November 29th, uh, 1947. Immediately after, fighting begins between Arabs and Jews in Palestine. Post-war was was a significant period in terms of the the arc of British colonialism, in that several of the former colonies either became independent states or or started their statehood process. For like India, for example, I guess mm-hmm. the question is, what was it about Palestine that made Britain sort of hunt it to the UN rather than just allowing them to form? A democratic state? Uh, because it was already officially a part of a mandate given by the UN. I mean, the British were invested in, in, in this differentiation in their colonialisms, right? So this wasn't called colonialism. The British didn't consider this to be a, co- a fully colonial situation. And in that case, in, in certain ways, it was easier for them than India, where they had to deal with how to end that mess, which, of course, they end up dis- getting very absolutely wrong and, and leading to a deadly war uh, with the creation of Pakistan. But they didn't want to deal with that responsibility on their own in Palestine, and they were able to go to the UN to basically punt it. So did they view it then, is it like a caretaker role? It was claimed to be a caretaker, yes. It was the mandate's idea, which was created by the League of Nations Charter, the end of World War One was to aid the people who are not yet ready for independence. Right. Um, so, and again, so the, huge undertones of white man knows better. Exactly. I mean, it was very much colonial language. If you look at the um, League of Nations Charter, Article 22, you will see the colonial language galore. So by 1947, pretty much the world's on, on, on board with the creation of an Israeli state. The UN, it's in their purview to go ahead and, and chart this up since the land technically is sort of mm-hmm. theirs. It's a trustee, yeah. Right, so they they carve it up and do they screw that up pretty hard? Because the first maps I mean, that I've ever seen are like you've got these two chunks of Israeli areas and then Palestinian areas and they're fairly as far as I can tell, just from a land size perspective, they're they're fairly we're comparative. 56%, 46%. This is the division. 56% to the Jewish state, 46% to the Arab state, and then the rest are international. The issue is that what kind of land is included in which 
But beyond that, the issue is that for the Palestinians, the argument was this is our home. Why would we agree for it to be divided? The Zionist movement strategically agreed to the partition plan, but research has shown that this agreement was only tactical in the sense that they never intended to follow the borders as drawn by the partition plan. In fact, Israel now is what is called Israel proper, is 78% of historic Palestine rather than 56 that were allotted in the partition plan. What was the percentage of population breakdown in, in 1948, would you estimate? So in the area that was supposed it, the total population, so there's two different ways of thinking about it. There were 630,000 Jews and 1,200,000 Palestinians, uh, Palestinian Arabs, almost. But the more important statistic, I think, is that within the Arab state, there was very, very small Jewish population, mostly in the Jerusalem area. Within the Jewish state, there would have been 45% Palestinians, which, of course, would have become a significant challenge, which is a part of why some scholars argue that there was actually premeditated ethnic cleansing conducted by the Jewish and later Israeli army against the Palestinians. So that's a a pretty loaded term. Yes. So before we open that bomb... um, (laughs) So when when the division was made, the population of the Palestinian areas uh, mm-hmm. or the areas defined as Palestinian were were two thirds Palestinian. The Arab and the, the population more, more than two thirds. So they were more more like ninety percent. Okay, and then the were, the population breakdown within the areas defined as Israeli as the Jewish state. Yeah, the decision basically said the Arab state and Jewish state. Right, I get that. But the, so the what would that population that breakdown have been? 55 Jewish, 45 Arab. Right. And then outside that, in Palestine, it's 90% plus Arab. 90, yeah. 90 plus. Okay. So they, it, it sounds like they tried. They, they tried to create the division around the population centers? Uh, well... There again, there's almost basically half of the population of the Jewish state was Arab, and 45% is huge, right? But there was basically because Palestine was full of Palestinians, there was just no escaping that. So, when, <laughs> when the UN did this, did, did they make any provisions for the protection or the rights of Palestinians? Was there anything there was overturned? Maybe uh, like an idea that it had to be, you know, peaceful, but that wasn't enforced in any way. I mean, the war literally broke out within days in Palestine on the ground. Initially, and what is considered a civil war, quote unquote, i.e. between Palestinian forces, irregular forces, and um, the um, the Zionist militias and some Arab, Arab volunteers. And then in May 14th, um, the state of Israel was declared by um, the Zionist leaders, and then the Arab states declare war. But the outcome is that between 19, between November 47 
And mid-1949, a war is raging in which the UN basically fails to really offer any protection. Um, Within that time period, Israel is created and eventually by the armistice agreements is um, established on 78% of historic Palestine. The rest of Palestine is divided. The Gaza Strip is under Egyptian control. The West Bank is under Jordanian control. And about 750,000 Palestinians had become refugees. Let's let's rewind that. So if Israel, or, or if the state that was partitioned, the Palestine, Palestine... Historic Palestine. Historic Palestine. So you're saying that 78% of that was what was divvied up between the Arabs and the Zionists. And then the no, 78%... Other, 22, 22% no, that, that. represents Gaza and West... And, and the West Bank, which are divided between... So Gaza is under Egyptian control and the West Bank is under Jordanian control. Those are the 22%. The 78% are actually what becomes Israel. That's right. Yeah. I think, yeah. So the 78% is the officially defined and then the Israel. those two regions are... Right. So were those people in Gaza and the West Bank essentially stateless? Are those the refugees yes. that you're speaking of? Or? Uh, no, no. The, 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 those are uh, those included the people who were originally from these areas, but they were under formal control. Jordan attempts to annex the West Bank and basically treat it as part of the country. So the Palestinians in the West Bank actually had Jordanian citizenship. Egypt controls it more as a controlled territory without status. Um, and then both of those areas in the falling under Israeli occupation in 1967. So now all of historic Palestine is under Israeli control. So the refugees came from Palestinians leaving the... The area that became Israel. Okay. And yeah, the did they do that? Right. The question of the creation of the Palestinian refugees is literally the hardest or one of the most contested, hardest questions in the conflict. The Palestinians argue that they were forced out of their country by uh, the Zionist forces and by Zionist and Israeli aggression. The Israeli state claimed historically and still continues to claim that the Palestinians left on their own accord that their leaders told them to leave, that they left, that Israel did not want to cause their flight. Since the 1980s, uh, new research by Israeli historians, what are what is known as the new historians, has proven without doubt that there was systematic expulsion uh, of Palestinians in certain cases that there was large-scale intimidation and terrorizing, and that Israel prevented the return of the refugees at the end of the war. Now, the the contested part remains mainly about the extent of the uh, premeditation and how systematic the expulsion was. How, How organized it was versus just organic. Yes. Was there an Israeli policy to ethnically cleanse? This is the term that those who argue that there was. Was there a plan to ethnically cleanse Palestine or not? 
this is the kind of the big debate. But again, from an American point of view, yes, they're refugees, but it's not a big deal, right? You drive 20 miles in one direction and you're in Palestine and you just sort of set up there. But you can't. But you can't. That's that's Why the not? point. You, Israel physically prevents the Palestinians from returning to their homes. No, I, I get that. Like their original home. So they're in the, they're in yeah. these Israeli pockets and they're kicked they're out of these all, Israeli all. pockets. So most of the refugees end up in the Arab countries, actually, in, in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, some in Egypt. Um, and today they're scattered around the world. Why wouldn't they go to Palestinian areas? Gaza is the most densely populated area in the world because, in part, it is full of refugees. But it's also not economically viable. And what's more is for... These people, Gaza is not home. Home is Haifa or Jaffa or their villages in what is now Israel. This is the argument. And the argument here is that according to international law, what Palestinians argue is that according to international law, they are refugees who are entitled to the right to return to their homes. Um, the UN in 1948 made, um, well, the the UN General Assembly in 1948 took the decision, um, uh, Resolution 194, which said that the Palis any Palestinian who wishes to return to their homes are allowed to do so. This decision has been repeated about 50 times in the UN, and yet the Palestinians have not been allowed to return to their homes. Got it. So the first, the, there's the first war in, in 1948, right, which which mm -hmm. it was basically the civil war. Obviously, the Palestinians living there had a grievance. I, what was the reasoning behind the Arab states joining into that that fight? Well, the official claim is that they were supporting the Palestinians that, as part of the Arab people. History is much more complicated and has proven also that there was a lot of conflicting interests. So, for instance, Jordan, now we now know Jordan entered the war with the intention of annexing the Arab part of Palestine, and it actually had colluded with the Zionist movement and the British to do so. Egypt wanted to, and Syria, in certain ways, wanted to control or stop the Jordanian plan. So, in that sense, the official big statement is they were going to support the Palestinians uh, under the surface. Um, it's a much more complicated story, which is the same as today. Right, right. So, from the, the again, the the sort of the, the the common understanding over here is that in each of these cases, I think in in 1948, 1967 was 1972 one. 73. 73. Yes. That in each of those cases, the Israelis were the respondents. They were the non-aggressors. They were, they were attacked. And then in that conflict under which they were attacked, they expanded their territories for defensive purposes. How, how much of that <laughs> statement is, is, is accurate? So if you, if you ask the average Israeli, they'll probably stress that. Although since 1982, even that, that, that became even more contested among Israelis because in 1982, the war on Lebanon was clearly a war of aggression. 
And it raised a lot of questions for Israelis about whether the uh, other wars were defensive wars. But Israel has refused to relinquish the areas that it occupied in 67. It has refused to allow the Palestinian refugees the right of return. So for the Palestinians, the wars were not as defensive as Israel claims. Um, The UN Security Council Resolution 242, which was issued after 1967, stated that Israel has to return territories occupied during the war in 67, and Israel has yet to return that. So the question remains of, of where is your starting point, right? Where is, when do you start in order to claim defensiveness? Well, I think I think part of it is who attacks, at least for us, we have this thing yeah. about who attacks first. Right, because I think from from an American worldview, once someone gets attacked, the people who were attacked get to do whatever they want. It's sort of the door has been opened, so to speak. Right, but those are never unambiguous, right? Like we know that that people want the comfortable, neat categories, right? Someone attacked, someone got attacked, and they responded. But but the reality of it is, is it's much more complicated than that. Wars don't start as neatly. But regardless, regardless of who started it, who didn't start it, mm-hmm. the the UN said, give the land that you appropriated during those conflicts back. Yes. That was UN Resolution 242. It was repeated in UN Resolution 338 after 1973. It has been definitely uh, the international community's position since then. But Israel has refused to to return those lands. And but there doesn't seem including to be any, by the way the U.S. Right, but there doesn't seem to be any uh, international movement to try and enforce it. Nope, because the U.S. vetoes every attempt. Okay, so currently, mm-hmm. as of right now, there's God, and this is. So it's so complicated. I think that's the other thing. I I, I think uh, I heard a quote. I think I don't know if it was Churchill or something, but um, all you need to know about Americans is that they like things to be simple. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know how fair it is, but I, I think it's maybe more of a human nature. But exactly, I was about to say. I think it's all humans. Yeah, uh, simple, clearly labeled, clearly defined in, in its own box. So yeah. we have Gaza uh, bordering Egypt, and mm-hmm. and currently that's where the majority of Palestinians live, correct? Uh, a million, how much, how many people? No, it's not the, 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 the absolute majority. I mean, there's, the Palestinians right now are scattered. It's, very, it's the most densely populated area in the world per square meter. It's tiny. It's uh, 141 square miles with about 2 million people living in it. So 12 miles by 12 miles? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. And on one side, they have Israel, and on the other side, they have Egypt. And the third side is the sea. Yes, the Mediterranean. And then in the north, by Jordan, you have the West Bank. Yes, which to make it easy for people, it's the West Bank of the Jordan River. 
it, it's so confusing. Every time I hear West Bank, it's like, wait, it's on the east side. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, it's the West Bank of the Jordan River. Okay. So it's on the opposite side of the Jordan River from Jordan. Yes. Uh, and politically, Gaza is politically controlled by Hamas and mm-hmm. the West Bank is controlled by Hezbollah? No, no, by Fatah, which is the Palestinian Authority. Hezbollah is in Lebanon. So the, the basically the idea is that in 1993, the peace agreements created this idea of a Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. In 2006, Hamas won the elections, but the Palestinian, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which is led by Fatah, which is the organization of Arafat, Americans usually can recognize that name, they ended up not accepting the elections, and there was a big infighting among the Palestinians, which left Gaza under the Hamas government and the West Bank under the uh, PLO government. Right. And I think, again, in our consciousness, there's this Clinton did something, uh, <laughs> I think, and, and Yasser. So you're, you're, you're mixing three different periods now. Yeah. So this is why I'm Begin so was, about everything. This is why. <laughs> so Begin. Was, I am not a smart man. I am not a smart man. <laughs> you are plenty smart, I'm sure. Um, so Begin was with Carter. And that was a peace with Egypt in 1978. And then uh, Bush Sr. actually started the peace process with the Madrid conference in 1990, in which he forced Shamir, the Israeli prime minister, to sit with the Arab countries, which eventually ended up failing, but out of it, or in secret, there were parallel secret negotiations in Oslo between the um, PLO and Israel. So that's the agreement. And then Clinton kind of tried to shepherd this process um, in the 1990s until it kind of officially died in 2000 in um, the failure of the Camp David negotiations. And that was the Arafat, Clinton, and, well, Rabin in 93 and Barak in in 2000 but the names are not important. <laughs> <laughs> names, I, well, uh, yeah. Uh, so I guess, I guess what I'm confused about is why were these negotiations with the other Arab states? Why wasn't it? Because it's really an internal territorial distribution and, and rights within, correct? Well, well, there's, there's, Two layers to that. A, Israel still occupies um, territory from Syria, the Golan Heights. So the Syrians are actually a party to the negotiations directly. Uh, Egypt got the Sinai back in 1978 in the the Camp David uh, agreements. But the other Arab countries, the idea was that that has been basically promoted since... UN Resolution 242 is land for peace. So basically, Israel gives up the land it occupied in 67, and the Arab states collectively agree to peace with Israel. So that's why why they were party to the negotiations. The other factor was that in 1990, in Madrid, Israel refused to negotiate with the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, which was recognized by the UN as the official representative of the Palestinians. 
So they would only agree to uh, certain individuals joining the Jordanian delegation. And only when those fail, yes. So that brings us, and, and I'm sorry if I've, I've missed this somewhere along mm-hmm. the way. In in the current mapping scheme, which has mm-hmm. the the sort of the, the land allocated, when when you talk mm-hmm. about areas in Israel that aren't Gaza or the West Bank, but are mm-hmm. considered "quote unquote" Palestinian, is that under Palestinian so, authority control? So the seventy-eight percent, like if you if you look at the Google map, if you zoom out in the Google map, you're going to see the line, the solid line or solid-ish line, which is the Israeli state, and in the middle of it, there's the West Bank. In the right side, on the Jordan, on the side of Jordan, and there's the Gaza Strip on the southern Mediterranean, um, Mediterranean side, right? And then the rest of it is considered, or is usually called Israel proper. The seventy-eight percent, those are controlled by the state of Israel. They're basically, you know, under full Israeli control. It's internationally recognized as part of Israel. But within that area, there are about. 1.2 million Palestinian citizens. So in the end of the war in in 48, about 160,000 Palestinians remained in the area that was declared Israel. And now their descendants are about 1.2 million Palestinians who are citizens of Israel and are under full Israeli control. And and I read in one of your papers that they're sort of the forgotten Palestinians that, yes. that the Arabs view them as mm-hmm. as basically traitors? Used to at least. Um, but there definitely had been marginalized in both the Israeli and the Pal- and the Palestinian narrative in certain ways. Um they were kind of, you know, in the early years after nineteen forty eight, in the Arab states, the argument was if they weren't traitors, why did they stay? This has changed, but they're still kind of not taken into account. Um, by and large, in the general perception. In fact, the last round of aggression that you were talking about, the one in May, um, might have been a beginning of a shifting point of a reimagining of a Palestinians as a one unit because there was massive scale solidarity actions that happened across the uh, divisions in Palestine, in the West Bank, inside Israel, and in the Gaza Strip, um, including a a day strike, um, that might suggest a a beginning of a shift in this conceptualization. So we have have basically, there's three groups of Palestinians. There's the Palestinians who live in Gaza and the West Bank under strict Israeli control. Um, Mm -hmm. There's the Palestinians who are sort of part of society within Israel itself. And then you have the Palestinians who have sort of, you you have the Palestinians who have gone abroad or or, uh, settled down in in other countries. Who have become refugees. I I prefer that term because gone abroad suggests choice. And settled also suggests choice. And, and, And in most cases, that's not the case. One of the, again, I'm, I'm going off a of general American perception here. So mm-hmm. and this is why I'm mm-hmm. so wrong all the time. Uh, is uh, My understanding is that Israel has the Knesset, their, their sort of Congress, mm-hmm. 
is a fairly mm-hmm. inclusive Congress, right? There's Arab parties and there's a, there's a, it's a multi-party parliamentary type system. How would you describe the rights of the Palestinian citizens in the Israeli areas? Not, not yet talking about Gaza or West Bank, but mm-hmm. it, yeah, is, inside Israel. are they on an inside Israel? Are they on equal yeah. footing? Are they same, same? Mm-hmm. One of the things that made a lot of noise and got a lot of attention in in the U.S. is a is the nation state law that was instituted about two years ago. I don't know if you re- remember it, but basically, it's a law that the Netanyahu government initiated that basically said Israel is a Jewish state, and kind of basically the Palestinians are not um, a part of this. Um, and they're taking out of it. And that was only one manifestation of the long history of Israeli discriminatory policies towards the Palestinians. Um, so as I said before, Israel is a formal democracy, but in practice, it has not been a real democracy. One of the Palestinian legal organizations have um, made a list of 65 laws in Israel that are discriminatory. So. Yeah, 65 laws, which basically cover, and this is about citizens, and they cover aspects of access to education and to uh, resources and to employment and uh, legal rights, language uh, rights. Marriage and divorce in Israel are controlled by uh, religious laws for all religious communities. So Jews are controlled by Jewish religious law, Muslims, Christians, and Druze each have their own religious laws, which is also a very strange and not particularly democratic issue. So second-class citizens is fair. Uh, Definitely, definitely, yeah. Second or third, even in certain ways. So the perception also, I think, of of Gaza and, and probably to a lesser extent West Bank is that Gaza is just basically on lockdown Israel controls the borders and there's Mm -hmm. a number of things that Israel prevents from getting into Gaza, you know, medicine, foreign aid, construction materials, foods. This week there was a prevention of chocolate. Chocolate was not allowed into Gaza. Chocolate. Don't look for the logic. (laughs) Well, they would, I think the Israeli people would say those, those shipments government. Right. The Israeli government would say the shipments that come in are just cover for illegal weapons, etc. No, no, this is not even the argument. The argument, I mean, they can, they go through everything. It's not that, like, it actually has to go through Israeli control. So they can see what it is. The argument in many cases is that it's his multi-use items or, you know, things that, like, have more than one use that could be used for more than one use, but I think it's just, even those who make that argument don't really believe it. Honestly, in some of these cases, it's very hard to find a convincing argument. Like I was looking earlier at the list, um, the earlier list, it was recently updated and I couldn't find the new one, but it included cardamom. I, I'm sorry, I don't under, what, what was that? <laughs> cardamom, the spice. Oh, I don't know how to cook. <laughs> So that's, that's, yeah, okay. So, but basically, there's a spice. <laughs> but included spice. There's a spice yeah. they don't like. 
yeah, I was like, uh, okay, how exactly can you claim this is a security risk? Okay. Um, <laughs> so that that brings us to today. And yeah. again, I think, you know, based on what happened in May, you know, we heard, you know, anecdotally, you know, the Israel, especially, I think they they blew up one of these apartment buildings and mm-hmm. basically said it was being used as a as a Hamas headquarters or a terrorist headquarters because it was a tall building and they could they could see into yeah. Israel with it. And I think that just I think it struck a lot of Americans as just like, wait a minute, what's you're just blowing stuff up because you can blow stuff up. Yep. Especially that that happened to be a media tower in which some of the world press, yes, it had it host it housed the AP and Al Jazeera and several other world news outlets. And we've long seen or read reports, you know, uh, Israeli troops uh, shoot young boy throwing rocks at tanks. Um, we see pictures of mm-hmm. Israel tanks bulldozing Palestinian houses. But it's always really explained constantly that, hey, we're we're doing this because we're being attacked. It's a security risk. And we're, we're just creating a defensive posture. Well, you know, Israel has been occupying the West Bank and Gaza Strip since 1967. It has held millions of people who are civilian population under strict military control for over, what are we now, 50 years? I think at this point, it's very good for Americans to ask, can you really claim that you're being, that an army, the third largest army, strongest army in the world, is being defensive against civilians it has controlled for 50 years? Or can we think about a different explanation? Especially in light of the fact that the Israeli prime minister or the deputy prime minister, the guy who's in line for the rotation, Lapid, just said Israel's not, this government is not interested in a two-state solution. So Israel again is saying, we don't want, the Palestinians are saying, we'll take two states, we'll take the 22%. But Israel is refusing. What about the argument that the it's they're defensive, not necessarily because of the Palestinians per se, but rather the entirety of the Arab world around them and the the perceived perception that we're going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Israel doesn't have the right to exist, etc. Um, no one has really made that claim for quite a long time. Even when it was made, I think it was very limited. I mean, Israel... The Israeli army won in six days over the Arab countries altogether in 1967. Let's just keep that in mind. But the other thing I want to highlight is the recent events in the last two years. Israel is now in tight relationships with the core Arab states. It has a peace agreement with Egypt, a peace agreement with uh, Jordan. It has Um, basically renewed and created close ties with Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates. So right now, the core of the Arab states are actually quite okay with Israel. It's not under threat. The only country that still openly declares hostility towards 
Israel is Syria in any real way, but even Syria has not actually attacked Israel since 1973. Uh, Iran is not an Arab state. It's not an Arab state. It's a Muslim state, but it's not an Arab state. Um, they're Iranian or Persian, um, um, with some Arabs and others. It's a mixed country, but but that's how is controlling the Palestinian territories giving Israel any protection from Iran? I mean, it, you might argue the opposite, that Iran, at least in posturing, claims that it's vying for Palestinian rights, which, of course, is something that we can be, we can debate. And I think it's much more about strategic interests. But one could argue that if Israel stopped occupying the Palestinians, then Iran would have no beef with Israel. Right. You could always flip the argument and say, well, if Israel ended the occupation, then there would be no reason for the Arab countries to threaten it. Well, I think in America, we just think that that's never going away because Muslims hate Jews. That's what we've... Um, that's what... Well, that's a narrative that has been constructed, right? It's not an absolute reality, and it's not something that people come to think. In fact, in the U.S. itself, if you think about it, Muslims and Jews live in quite a peaceful coexistence in the U.S. itself. Muslims and Jews have lived in Palestine and throughout the Middle East in, you know, I'm not going to say in perfect harmony, but quite peaceful coexistence for centuries. There were hundreds of thousands of Arab Jews who ended up being forced into Israel in the aftermath of 1948. But up until that point, they lived among Arabs in the Arab world for centuries, literally. There were long established communities in Baghdad, in Damascus, in Beirut, in Yemen, in Morocco, in Tunisia. And they lived there in basically kind of a peaceful coexistence for centuries. So there is nothing inherently hostile between these communities. It is a political conflict. And as soon as the political reasons are resolved, we can go back to living together. Right. Because it's, and it's, it's conflict that's driven. It's not, it's, it's not just political per se. It's also where the ethnic differences are exaggerated by politicians for their own benefit. Yes, exactly. I mean, a very big part of the Israeli society, more, I think it's around 50% now, are actually what is called Mizrahi Jews or what some call Arab Jews. This is Jews who actually came from the Arab world, who up until the creation of Israel lived in Arabic. They ate the same food or very similar food. So, so that the ethnic difference is not necessarily one that is inherent, but one that has been created and maintained for the sake of the political conflict. So quickly, we, again, my perception is that Gaza feels like it's much more locked down or under control than the West Bank is. Is that yes. fair to say? Gaza is a, is a large open space prison. Okay. And the Israeli explanation for that would be because they're the violent ones? Or how would an Israeli justify the difference between the West Bank and Gaza? Well, Israel claims that it, it 
no longer occupies the Gaza Strip. So in 2005, um, the Israeli government decided to, quote-unquote, disengage from Gaza. So they withdrew the army from inside Gaza and dismantled the settlements, the Jewish settlements that were in the Gaza Strip. But what they did is they actually they pulled out and then basically put a fence around it and locked it down. So the explanation is, is as if Israel no longer occupies the Gaza Strip. But the other practical reason is that there are hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers in the West Bank. So there is no possibility. The, the reason that is possible to do this in Gaza is that it's now fully Palestinian, A, and B, it's a small, confined area. So it's very easy to lock it down and to prevent access. Whereas in any part of the West Bank, you would have to basically lock down some Jewish communities or Jewish settlements with the Palestinians in almost any configuration. Unless you start putting, you know, surrounding each particular Palestinian town or village uh, individually, which a couple of towns are by surrounded by the wall from all directions as well. So there seems, and again, I think it's fairly clear and it feels, it's sad that there's sides to this, right? But it, it, yeah. it feels, I'm, I'm starting to get an inkling maybe of what side you might land on. On the side of justice. There, <laughs> there we go. Great answer. Um, it feels like throughout this narrative that the Israelis have been, and I'm going to use a very non-academic mm-hmm. word here. They've been kind of dicks about the whole thing. <laughs> Well, I, I, I prefer to say the Israeli government, the Israeli authorities, the Israeli army, because I don't necessarily think that we can say all Israelis are part of it. Just like we we don't want to say Americans are occupying Afghanistan, the American army was in, in Afghanistan, right? So I think it's a very important distinction. But in democracy, I think you can blame the population a little bit more than you could in, say, something like, you know, There's you know, just... definitely complicity. I agree with that. There's definitely complicity. But let's just say for for argument, the Israeli from the jump, the Israeli mm-hmm. government has acted in in sort of a dickish manner. And again, I think I think our, our American perception is, well, you know, they're kind of entitled to be dickish, right? They've they've just had a country try and wipe their entire species off the face of the earth. Um, they've kind of been kicked around by people throughout the centuries, and they're going into a place that's basically dirt and trying to make something of it. And they're surrounded on all sides by by enemies. I think that's just the general kind of generic narrative, which sort of explains or at least defends them being dickish because they have to be dickish. But that's the narrative that was created by Israeli leaders. Exactly to the T. Right, like this is exactly the narrative as the Israeli leaders would like you to believe. But the reality is far from that. Unless you accept that the Palestinians are inherently villain, you can't accept that narrative. Because how could the Palestinians and the Arabs in general have been wrong consistently for 70 plus years? And yet they've been the ones who've had the most fatalities, the ones who've lived under occupation, the ones who continue to suffer in mass. How could how could these two work together? 
And, and, and regarding the first part of this, I will say that there is some Israeli uh, descendants of Holocaust survivors who make a very, very powerful argument, including Amira Ahas, if you're interested in looking, looking them up, who basically make a very compelling argument that because Jews have suffered so much, they have a moral responsibility to prevent the repetition of such acts against others. So the Holocaust should be a moral deterrent rather than a moral justification for per- perpetuating injustice. Yeah, a, a more cynical American than I would probably say it has something to do with Palestinians being brown. No, I think any American could also definitely very justifiably say that Orientalism is a part of the question. There is no question that a part of the unconditional American support for Israel over the decades is a very racist idea that accept that that thinks that you know Jews are one of us, they're like us, they're modern, they're developed, they're whatever you want to however you want to frame it, they're white. And and then the Arabs are backward, barbaric contest, you know, our way of life or whatever. And and then this, if, if you remember the, the wake of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, that language would sound so familiar because it's the same kind of discourse. So to wrap up, and this is to me the most current interesting thing, <laughs> right now, yeah. you would you would apply the word apartheid to Gaza. Uh, no, it's much worse than apartheid. It's much worse than apartheid. It's much worse than apartheid in Gaza. It's literally an open air prison. Okay, in the for the Palestinians or mm-hmm. the Palestinians in the West Bank or in Israel, is that apartheid? It fits in certain ways, yes. And, and and the reason why the term apartheid has gone has gotten so much traction recently is because there's an attempt particularly to an American audience, to raise the consciousness of the days that the Americans stood up and rejected to be, refused to be a part of apartheid, right, of the South African apartheid regime. And a part of the Palestinian appeal to the term apartheid is to say, this, you stood against apartheid in South Africa. Why are you not standing against this? Look at the crimes. Look at the separation. Look at the racism. Look at the structural oppression of the Palestinians and recall South Africa and then find the sympathy and the political will to then resist it. And in that sense, I think that analogy works. So the analogy works for for the Palestinians in Israel and the West Bank, but in terms of Gaza itself, we're, we're way beyond apartheid. I think we're in a much worse situation uh, we are, I don't know, maybe, you know, Jim Crow South or worse. Open air prison. Open air prison. I mean, it's, you, if you think about it from 2005, we're now in 2021, there is a whole generation that can't even imagine an open world. This is people who are trapped, who, who are born from the day they're born they the, their whole life is this what what did we say 140 square miles 
That's it. I mean, can you can can we even fathom that? So can they not? And forgive my ignorance. Can they not go into Egypt? It's very hard. Egypt has collaborated with Israel on the closure by and large, except for short intervals. Egypt has been in agreement and in collaboration with Israel um, about maintaining the closure. So it's extremely hard to get in or out of the Gaza Strip. And if you get out, it's basically impossible to come back. I have friends who have not seen their families for over a decade because even if they were able to somehow miraculously enter Gaza, they're not sure they're going to be able to go back to their jobs and lives outside. That's how isolated this place is. So in the veins of apartheid, I first heard, I read an article about two or three years ago, I think, and it was about the state of Texas refusing Mm -hmm. to extend a contract with one of its suppliers who was also based in Texas because mm-hmm. the supplier refused to do business with the state of Israel. And that turned me on to this whole BDS movement, which is boycott, divestiture, divestment and, and sanctions. sanctions. And sanctions. Boycott, sanctions. And right. Basically, it's a, it's a, let's start punishing Israel like we punished South Africa, right? Let's exactly. start Let's start making them feel some economic mm-hmm. pain for what they're doing to the Palestinians. And cultural. Right, right. So the contract, the case in Texas was actually even more extreme because the state was demanding that they sign a document that they will not support BDS. So basically it was even more extreme than actually saying, no, you have to, uh, you, you know, that the person was saying, I'm not going to do business with Israel. The person was saying, I'm not going to sign something that says I can't support this movement. And the reason that was an issue is because states are starting to weave that language into their boilerplate government contractor Mm -hmm. forms. That if you, you can't BDS Israel if you're going to do business. So you don't have to actually do anything. You can't ideologically or you can't declare support to the movement yeah and i think that's gone under the radar and i think it's important yeah because that's a question of freedom of opinion it's it's not even about economic practices it literally says that you can't express support for a political position if you want a contract with texas or several other states and it has not gained, as you're, you're right, it has not gained enough attention. So in my head, you know, BDS seems like a perfectly valid way to start putting pressure on Israel to start, you know, treating these people humanely. Um, I agree. But anytime BDS is brought up in, in really any sort of setting, mm-hmm. because of the close tie between... Israel and the Jewish religion and the intertwining of those is that if you are a BDS supporter, you are anti-Semitic. And, and anti-Semitic uh, well, is, is, a, is a curse of... It's a scary thing. Over here. Yeah. It's a scary thing. And, and that's a tactic. 
Yeah, you don't want to be anti-Semitic. Nobody wants to be anti-Semitic or labeled as anti-Semitic. Yeah, and and that's the, that's the tactic that is being used. I mean, clearly, you know, there might be anti-Semites who are using the BDS. I'm not going to deny that. But clearly, this is not the question. This is not what's at stake. People support the BDS because they believe that the state of Israel is acting illegally and immorally and is committing crimes against the Palestinians. Many of the BDS supporters are actually Jewish. It is not, and and they're definitely not anti-Semitic Jews and they're not self-hating Jews. The issue is that it became a political weapon. As you said, no one wants to be considered anti-Semitic. So this is how you shut down free speech. This is how you end the conversation, right? Instead of actually discussing the merits of the issues, the claims that I've raised over this conversation, you just say, oh, this is anti-Semitic, and then there's no longer a conversation, right? You no longer have to actually argue facts. You no longer have to prove anything, because now you're just trying to prove that you're not anti-Semitic. And that's how you shut down conversations. And I think that's... That's right. No, I, it's an easy It's an easy reach. It's... it's uh... And and Semitism isn't the only arena that, that that's sort of pulled. But I guess the question is, how would you advise someone to respond if they're talking about BDS and they get accused of anti-Semitism? I would insist that there is a difference between Israel and Jewishness. That there are millions of Jews who are not citizens of Israel, who do not live in Israel, and even some Jews who live in Israel who don't agree and who uh, with the Israeli policies and who for whom Israeli policies um, does not represent them. Um, and that conflating Israel with, with Jewishness is actually a problem because when people are specific, when they're actually criticizing Israeli policies, then it's very clearly making the distinction between the acts of a state and critique of acts of the state as opposed to a collective of people. And conflating those, I think, is more dangerous in the long run. Right, but didn't didn't Netanyahu do that a bit himself with his proclamation of a couple of years ago that you mentioned in earlier? Yep, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a part of the, the political attempt. I mean, there is an interest among Israeli definitely right-wing conservative forces to make this conflation because it serves their political purpose. It serves as a part of strengthening their tie with Christian Zionists and the um, basically conservative institution in the U.S. It serves as a way of using this connection in order to justify Israeli actions uh, against the Palestinians and to um, shut down any critique of Israel for those actions. But that doesn't mean that Israel gets to define who is Jewish. And in fact, there are a lot of Jews and a lot of Jewish movements ha- have been opposed to this attempt, um, including what was called the Jerusalem Declaration regarding anti-Semitism, which was a, a statement by dozens of Jewish intellectuals opposing this attempt to lump together Israel and Jewishness. Right. Well, 
see, we got we got through an entire semester of your class here. <laughs> like we got it. We we got it all. Uh, we if, if someone <laughs> boy did we a lot. Um, for those who are listening who want to get more information about the conflict and a better understanding about the conflict, hopefully from a you know quote unquote non biased source. Are there resources out there? Can you? Is there anything that you would recommend, either books or video or YouTube channels? Or there's a, a new book that came out last year by Palestinian historian Rashid Khalidi called "100 Years of Conflict." Sorry, I'm just trying to give you the exact title: "The Hundred Years War on Palestine." That's a really good overview of the conflict in the last hundred years. If people want um, more detailed and, and kind of a textbook, more, more like a textbook with a lot of details in it, I recommend Charles Smith's uh, textbook, The Arab-Israeli Conflict, which also has primary sources, documents about the conflict. In terms of media, the Guardian tends to have a more reasonable coverage of the conflict if you want to read ongoing news. I guess those would be the kind of top go-to recommendations. Okay. Is there anybody that you respect that is on the Israeli side of things that that is Um, arguing the Israeli position that, that you think does so in good faith? I mean, the Israeli government's position, I don't think anyone does that in good faith. I have no faith in them. Um, I could definitely recommend Jewish or Israeli scholars who are, you know, Jewish Israeli scholars who, who can also present a different perspective. No, that's okay. I think I think we'll stick with the two in the, the newspaper uh, that you've given. So to wrap up, we, we, we like to, at the end of these, we like to ask our guests about media that they're currently absorbing because we're we've all been sort of in lockdown for a while mm-hmm. we're always looking for new content to kind of entertain us uh maybe end the program on a little bit more of an uplifting note but is there anything that you've come across uh, either a reading video listening to uh, music it can be literally anything to fill those cabin fever um, times uh that you you think uh, people might enjoy out there I just finished reading The Bad Muslim Discount, uh, which is a novel, and it's so fun. It's I know the title doesn't suggest it, but it's actually a really good novel with like, you know, it has some, you know, intense moments, but it's definitely like in a light-spirited, funny, written in a funny way and like really well-written. Awesome. Okay. Well... Thank you for that. Um, thank you, Doctor. It's been it's been a great conversation. I hope it wasn't too taxing. Uh, I'm sure. No, it, I enjoyed it. it. Thank it you. Wasn't, but thank you. Thank you for putting up with me for 90 minutes. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I'm sure the listeners out there appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Catch us on Spotify and iTunes, and at tiltatwindmills.com.